This is Chapter 3 of Five Nights at Freddy's The Silver Eyes. Chapter 3. Thud, thud, thud. Charlie startled out of her sleep, disoriented. Something was banging on her door, trying to force its way in. Oh, for goodness sake, Jessica said grumpily, and Charlie blinked and sat up. Right. The motel. Hurricane. Someone was knocking on the door. As Jessica went to answer it, Charlie got out of bed and looked at the clock. It was 10 a.m. She looked out the window at the bright new day. She had slept worse than usual. Not nightmares, per se, but dark dreams that she could not quite remember. Things that stuck with her just beyond the back of her mind. Images she not, could not catch. Charlie! Someone was screeching. Charlie went to the door and found herself immediately enveloped in a hug. Marla's plump arms gripping her like a vice. Charlie hugged her back, tighter than she meant to. When Marla let go, she stepped back, grinning. Marla's moods have always been so intense that they were contagious, spreading out to whoever was in her path. When she was gloomy, a pall fell all over her friends. The sun went cold behind her, went behind a cloud. But when she was happy, like now, it was impossible to avoid the lift of her joy. She was always breathless, always slightly scattered and always giving the impression that she was running late, though she almost never was. Marla was wearing a loose dark red blouse and it suited her well, setting off her fair skin and dark brown hair. Charlie had kept in better touch with Marla than any of the others. Marla was the type who made it easy to stay friends, even at a distance. Even as little kids, she was always sending letters and postcards, undeterred if Charlie didn't respond to every single one. She was resolutely positive and assumed that everyone liked her unless they made it clear otherwise, using the proper explicitives. Charlie admired that about her. She herself, though not shy, was always calculating. Does that person like me? Are they just being polite? How do people tell the difference? Marla had come to visit her once when they were twelve. She had charmed Charlie's aunt and made fast friends with their school friends, while still making it abundantly clear that she was specifically Charlie's friend and she was only there to see Charlie. Marla's gigantic smile turned serious as she studied Charlie, peering at her as if trying to spot the differences since they last met. Oh, you're as pale as ever. She took Charlie's hands in her own, and you're all clammy. Don't you ever get warm? She dropped Charlie's hands and proceeded to study the motel room skeptically, as though uncertain exactly what it was. It's the luxury suite. Jessica said without expression as she searched for something in her bag. Her hair was sticking up in all directions and Charlie stifled a smile. It was nice to see something about Jessica in disarray for once. Jessica found her hairbrush and held it up triumphantly. Ha, take that morning frizz. Come on in, Charlie said realizing she and Marla were still in the doorway. The door wide open and Marla nodded. One second, Jason, she shouted out the door. No one emerged. Jason! She screamed. A young boy came trotting up from the road. He was short and wiry, darker skinned than his half-sister. His Batman t-shirt and black shorts were made for someone twice his size. His hair was cut close to his head, and his arms and legs were streaked with dirt. Were you playing in the road? Marla demanded. No, he said. Yes, you were. Don't do that. If you get yourself killed, Mom's gonna blame me. Now get inside. Marla shoved her little brother inside and shook her head. How old are you now? Charlie asked. I'm 11, Jason said. He went to the TV and started fiddling with the buttons. Jason, stop it, Marla said. Go play with your action figures. I'm not a little kid, he said. 
Anyway, they're in the car. But he stepped away from the television and went to look out the window. Marla rubbed her eyes. We just got here. We had to leave at six this morning and someone, she said, pointedly glancing over her shoulder at Jason, wouldn't stop fiddling with the radio. I am so tired. She didn't seem tired, but then she never did. At their sleepovers as kids, Charlie remembered her bouncing around like a maniac while the rest of them were winding down for the night, then falling asleep abruptly like a cartoon character who was hit over the head with a rolling pin. We should get ready, Jessica said. We're supposed to meet the guys at the diner in an hour. Ah, hurry, Marla said. We have to change too. I didn't want to get all gross while we were driving. Jason, you can watch TV, Charlie said, and he looked at Marla. She nodded and grinned and turned it on, starting to flip through the channels. Please just pick one channel. Marla said. Charlie headed into the bathroom to get dressed while Jessica fussed with her hair. A little less than an hour later, they pulled into the diner parking lot. The others were already there in the same booth that they'd been in the night before. When they got inside, Marla performed a second round of squeals and hugs, only slightly quieter now that they were in public. Overshadowed by her enthusiasm, Lamar stood and waved at Jessica and Charlie, waiting until Marla sat down. Hey guys, he said at last. He was wearing a dark tie and a dark gray suit. He was tall and thin, black with his hair shaved close to his head. His features were sharp and attractive, and he looked just a little older than the rest of them. It could have been the suit, but Charlie thought it was something about the way he stood, holding himself like he would be comfortable wherever he was. They all dressed up a little for the ceremony. Marla had changed at the motel, and she and Jessica were both wearing dresses. Jessica's was knee-length and covered in pastel flowers a light fabric that moved as she walked. Marla's was simple, white with big sunflowers splashed all over it. Charlie hadn't thought to bring a dress, and she hoped she didn't look out of place in black pants and a white button-down shirt. Charlie, John was wearing a light purple shirt today, though he added a matching tie in a slightly darker color, and Carlton seemed to be wearing an identical outfit as before, but it was still all in black. They all sat down. Well, don't we all look nice, Marla said happily. Where's Jason? Jessica craned, her head from side to side, and Marla groaned. I'll be right back. She scooted out of the booth and hurried out the door. Lamar, what have you been up to? Charlie asked, and Lamar grinned. Oh, he's an Ivy League man, Carlton said, teasing. Lamar looked briefly down at the table, but he was smiling. It was early acceptance, was all he said. Which one? Jessica asked. Uh, Cornell. Wait, how did you already apply to college? Charlie said, that's not till next year. I don't even know where I want to go. Well, remember he skipped the sixth grade, John said. There was a brief flicker of something across his face, and Charlie knew what it was. John liked being the clever one, the precocious one. Lamar had been kind of a goof-off when they were kids, and now he leaped ahead. John forced a grin, and the moment passed. <laughs> Congratulations, he said with no hint that he was not entirely sincere. Marla came bursting in again, this time towing Jason behind her, holding on to his upper arm. At the hotel, she made him change into a blazer and khakis as well, though he was still wearing his Nikes. I'm coming, stop pulling, he whined. Is that Jason? Carlton asked. Yeah, Jason said. Do you remember me? Carlton said. I don't remember any of you, Jason said unapologetically. Just sit there, Marla said, pointing to the next booth over. He grumbled and did as he was told. Marla, he can sit with us, Jessica said. Jason, come over here. I want to sit here, he said and sat down behind them. He pulled a video game out of his pocket and was oblivious to the world. The waitress came over and they ordered. Marla told her to put Jason's breakfast on their check. 
When their food came, Charlie checked her watch. Eh, we don't have a lot of time, she said. Oh, we'll get there, Carlton said. It's not that far. A small piece of food fell out of his mouth as he gestured down the road. Have you been back to school? Lamar asked and Carlton shrugged. Eh, I pass it sometimes. I know this is a nostalgia trip for all of you, but I just live here. I don't exactly go around reminiscing about kindergarten all the time. They were all quiet for a second, the beeps and pings of Jason's video game filling the silence. Hey, did you know Lamar's going to Cornell next year? Jessica said to Marla. Really? Well, aren't you just ahead of the pack? She said, and Lamar looked down at his plate, and when he looked up, he was a little flushed. It's all part of the five-year plan, he said. They laughed, and his blush deepened. It's kind of weird to be back here, he said, hastily changing the subject. I think it's strange that I'm the only one who still lives here, Carlton said. Nobody ever leaves Hurricane. Is it strange, though, Jessica said thoughtfully. My parents, you remember my mom's from New York originally. She used to joke about going back. Oh, when I go back to New York. But might as well have been when I win the lottery. She didn't mean it. And then right after Michael's, <clears throat> right after, uh, you know, she stopped joking about it. Then three months later, we were all on a plane to visit her sister in Queens, and we just never came back. My dad's father died when I was nine, and they came back to Hurricane for the funeral without me. They didn't want me coming back here, and honestly, I didn't really want to go. I was kind of anxious the whole time they were gone. I kept looking out the window, hoping they'd come back early, like something bad was going to happen if they stayed. They all looked at one another, considering. Charlie knew they had all moved, all but Carlton. But she never thought about it. I mean, people moved all the time. Carlton was right, though. People didn't normally leave Hurricane. Well, we moved because my dad got a new job. You know, the summer after third grade, John said. It's not exactly mysterious, Lamar. You left in the middle of the semester that year. Yeah, he said. But that's because my parents split. I went to my mom to Indianapolis. He frowned, but my dad moved too. He's in Chicago now. My parents left because of Michael, Marla said. They all turned to her. Afterwards, my mom couldn't sleep. She said spirits were stirring in the town on quiet. My dad told her she was being ridiculous, but we still left as soon as we could. Marla looked around at her friends. <laughs> what? She said defensively. I don't believe in ghosts. I do, Charlie said. She felt like she was talking from a great distance. She was almost surprised that they could hear. I mean, <clears throat> not ghosts, but memories. I think they linger, whether there's someone there or not. The house, her old house, was imbued with memory, with loss, with longing. It hung in the air like humidity. The walls were saturated like the wood had soaked it in. It had been there before she came, and it was there now, and it would be there forever. It had to be. There was too much, too great and vast a weight for Charlie to have brought it with her. That doesn't make any sense, Jessica said. Memories in our brains, like literally stored in the brain. You can see it on a scan. It can't exist outside of someone's mind. I don't know, John said. Think of all the places that have atmosphere. Old houses, sometimes places where you walk in, you feel sad or nostalgic, even though you've never been there before. Uh, that's not other people's memories, though, Lamar said. That's subconscious cues. Stuff we don't realize we're noticing that tells us we should feel some way. Peeling paint, old-fashioned furniture, lace curtains, details that tell us to be nostalgic. You know, mostly things we pick up from movies. Probably, anyway. I got lost at a carnival when I was four. I never got so scared in my life, but I don't think anybody's feeling suddenly desperate for their mom when they pass that Ferris wheel. Maybe they are, Marla said. I don't know. 
sometimes I have little moments where it's like there's something I forgot or something I regret or that I'm happy about or something that makes me want to cry, but it's only there for a split second and then it's gone. Maybe we're all shedding our fear and regret and hope everywhere we go and we're catching traces of people we've never met. Maybe it is everywhere. And how is that different than believing in ghosts? Lamar asked. Well, it's totally different, Marla said. It's not supernatural. And it's not like the souls of dead people. It's just people leaving their mark on the world. So it's the ghosts of living people, Lamar said. No. You're talking about people having some kind of essence that can hang around a specific place after the person is gone. That's a ghost, Lamar said. No, it's not. I'm not saying it right, Marla said. She closed her eyes for a minute, thinking. Okay. She said at last. Do y'all remember my grandmother? I do, said Jason. She was my grandmother, too. She was my dad's mom, not yours, Marla said. Anyway, you were only a year old when she died. Well, I still remember her, Jason said quietly. Okay, okay, Marla said. So she collected dolls from the time she was a kid. She and my grandfather used to travel a lot after he retired, and she'd bring them back from all over the world. She had them from France, Egypt, Italy, Brazil, China, you know, everywhere. She kept them in their own special room, and it was full of them. Shelves and shelves of dolls. Some tiny and some almost as big as I was. I loved it. One of my earliest memories is playing in that room with the dolls. I remember my dad would always warn me to be careful, and my grandmother would laugh and say, Toys are meant to be played with. I had a favorite. A 21-inch red-haired doll in short, shiny white dress like Shirley Temple, and I called her Maggie. She was from the 1940s, and I loved her. I told her everything, and when I was lonely, I would imagine myself in that room playing with Maggie. My grandmother died when I was six, and when my dad and I went to see my grandmother after the funeral, he told me I should pick a doll to keep from the collection. I went to the room to get Maggie, and as soon as I walked through the door, something was wrong. It was as though the light had changed, became darker, harsher than it used to be. I looked around, and the lively, playful poses of the dolls now seemed unnatural, disjointed. It was though they were all staring at me. I didn't know what they wanted. But Maggie was in the corner and I took a step towards her, but then I stopped. I met her eyes, and instead of painted glass, I saw a stranger. I don't know. I turned and I ran, and I raced down the hall as though something might be chasing me, not daring to look back until I reached my father's side. He asked if I picked a doll, and I just shook my head. I never went back to that room. Everyone was silent. Charlie was transfixed, still seeing little Marla running for her life. What happened to the dolls? Carlton asked, only half-breaking the spell. I don't know. I think my mom sold them to another collector after my grandfather died, Marla said. Sorry, Marla, Lamar said. It's still just tricks of your mind, though, if you think about it. You missed your grandmother, you were frightened of death, and the dolls are inherently freaky. Charlie broke in, wanting to head off the argument. Is everybody done eating? We probably should go soon. We still have plenty of time, Carlton said, looking down at his watch. It's like five minutes away. Something else fell out of his mouth, landing next to the first dropped bit of food. John looked around the table from person to person as though he were waiting for someone. We have to tell them, he said, looking at Charlie. Oh yeah, we totally do, Jessica said. Tell us what? Jason piped up, peeking over the back of Marla's seat. Shh, Marla said half-heartedly. She was looking at John. Tell us what? John dropped his voice, forcing everyone to lean in closer. Charlie did it too, eager to hear, even though she knew exactly what he was going to say. We went to Freddy's last night, he said. 
Freddy's is still there? Marla exclaimed far too loudly. Shh, Jessica said, making frantic hand movements. Sorry, Marla whispered. I just can't believe it's still there. Well, it, it's not. Carlton said, raising his eyebrows and grinning enigmatically at Lamar. It's hidden, John explained. They were supposed to knock it down to build a mall, but they didn't. They just built around it. Entombed it, John corrected himself. And you got in? Lamar said, and Charlie nodded confirmation. No way. What was it like? Marla asked. Exactly the same, John said. It was like... It was like everyone vanished, Charlie said softly. I want to go too. You guys have to take us, Marla said. Jessica cleared her throat hesitantly and they all looked at her. I don't know, she said slowly. I mean, today, should we? Yeah, we have to see it, Lamar said. You can't tell us this and not let us see it. Yeah, I want to see it too, Jason chimed in. What's up, Freddy's? They ignored him. His eyes were wide and he was hanging on to every word. Yeah, maybe Jessica's right, John said with reluctance. Maybe it would be disrespectful to go tonight. There was a moment's pause, and Charlie knew they were waiting for her to talk. She was the one they were really afraid of offending. They needed her permission. <sighs> I think we should go, she said. I don't think it's disrespectful. In a way, it's almost like honoring what happened. She looked around the table. Jessica was nodding. Charlie wasn't sure if it was much of an argument, but they didn't need to be convinced. They just wanted an excuse. Marla twisted herself to look back at Jason's plate. Are you done eating yet? She asked. Yup, he said. Marla pointed to the game in his hand. You know you can't play with that during the ceremony. Yup. I'm serious, Jason. I'm locking it in the car. Why don't you just lock me in the car? He muttered. Oh, I'd love to, Marla said under her breath as she turned back to the group. Okay, we can go. They headed to the school in a caravan, the boys in Carlton's car, Marla following and Charlie bringing up the rear. You know, we should have carpooled, Jessica said idly, staring out the window. It hadn't even occurred to Charlie. Yeah, I guess. On the other hand, I'm not sure I want to ride with Marla and Jason, Jessica said plainly. Man, they are kind of intense, Charlie agreed. When they arrived, the parking lot was already jammed full. Charlie parked on the side street in what she hoped was a legal spot, and they walked to the school along the familiar sidewalk. Jessica shivered. I've got goosebumps. We're going to take a slight pause there for a brief ad break, and we'll be right back with the second half of Chapter 3. Is it weird to be here? Charlie said. The school looked unchanged from the outside, but the fence was new and slick with a black plastic-coated chain link. The old town was like this, a mixture of old and new, familiar and not. The things that had changed seemed out of place, and the things that remained the same made Charlie feel out of place. It must be so strange for Carlton to live here, she thought. I know this is a nostalgia trip for all of you, but I just live here, he had said. Somehow, Charlie was not sure she believed that. When they got to the playing field behind the school, the bleachers were already full. Rows of folding chairs had been laid out in front of them to add more seating, and Charlie spotted Marla and the boys at the front. Oh, great, she said. I did not want to sit in the front row. I don't mind, Jessica said, and Charlie looked at her. Of course you don't, she wanted to say. You're you. Yeah, Charlie had said instead. No big deal. Half the town must be here. She observed as they made their way to the group where the two seats had been saved. There was one open in the front row next to Carlton, and one right beside it. Jessica winked at Charlie and sat down next to Carlton. She leaned towards him and they started to whisper. 
Charlie repeated herself to Marla. There's a lot of people here. Yeah, Marla said. I mean, it is a small town, you know. Michael's, it was a big deal. Plus, his parents still live here, and people remember. People remember. Charlie echoed softly. There was a small raised stage set up in front of them, with a podium and four chairs behind the chair. And behind those chairs, a screen was suspended. Projecting on it was a larger-than-life picture of Michael. It was a close-up of just his face. It was not the most flattering picture. His head was thrown back at an odd angle, his mouth open in laughter. But it was perfect. A joyful moment, snatched up and kept, not curated. And he looked genuinely happy. Darn it, Marla said softly. Charlie looked at her. She was dabbing at her eyes with a tissue. Charlie put an arm around her. I know, she said. The sound system came on suddenly with a whine that slowly faded. Four people walked on stage, a heavy-set man in a suit who went straight to the microphone, an elderly woman and a couple, a man and a woman. The man in the suit stepped up to the podium, and the elderly woman sat down in one of the four chairs. The couple stayed back, but they did not sit, and Charlie knew that those must have been Michael's parents, but she did not recognize them. When she was young, they had just been parents, a species that was for the most part unremarkable. She realized suddenly that she didn't even know their names. Michael's parents had not gone out of their way to interact with their son's friends, and Charlie had literally spoken to them as Michael's mom and Michael's dad, as if those were appropriate forms of address. The man at the podium introduced himself as the school's principal. He said a few things about loss and community and the fleeting preciousness of youth. He talked briefly about Michael's kindness, his artistic talent, and the impression that he made, even as a small child, on everyone that he met. It was true. Charlie reflected. Michael had been an unusually charismatic child. He wasn't exactly a leader, but they all found themselves wanting to please him, to make him smile. And so they often did the things that they knew he wanted to do just to make him happy. The principal finished and introduced Michael's parents, Joan and Donald Brooks. They stood at the podium awkwardly, each looking from face to face in the crowd as if they were not sure how they had even gotten here. Finally, Joan stepped forward. It feels strange to be up here, was the first thing she said, and a murmur of something like agreement swept quietly through the crowd. We are so grateful to all of you for coming, especially those of you that came from so far out of town. She looked directly at the front row, talking to Charlie and the others. Some of Michael's friends have come from all over, and I think that is a testament to who he was that ten years later. With your lives on new paths, moving on to a whole new stage of life. So close to the stage, Charlie could see that she was about to cry, tears wavering in her eyes, but her voice was steady. We are grateful you are here. We wanted to give Michael a legacy with this scholarship, but it is clear that he has already left one, all of his own. Marla grabbed Charlie's hand and Charlie squeezed it back. I want to say, Joan continued, something about the families who were not here. As we all know, Michael was not the only child lost during those terrible few months. She read out four more names, two girls and two boys. Charlie glanced at Marla. They all knew there had been other children, but Michael's death had loomed so great in all their lives that they had never even talked about the other victims. Now Charlie felt a pang of guilt to someone. Those little girls and boys had been just as vital as Michael. To someone, their losses had meant the end of their world. She closed her eyes for a moment. No, I can't mourn everyone, she thought. No one can. Joan was still talking. Although their families have moved on to other places, those young boys and girls will always have a place in our heart. Now I would like to call to speak a young man who is particularly close to my son. Carlton, if you would. 
They all watched in surprise as Carlton stood and climbed up behind the podium. Joan hugged him tightly and stayed close behind him as he pulled out a crumpled piece of paper from his pocket. He cleared his throat, looking over the heads of the crowd, then crumpled up the paper again and put it back in his pocket. I don't remember as much about Michael as I should, he said. Too much of those years is a blur. I know when we met there were, that we were still in diapers, but I don't remember that, thankfully. There was a soft titter through the crowd. I do know that as far back as I have memories, Michael is in them. I remember playing superheroes, drawing, which he was much better at than me. And as we got older, I remember, oh, playing superheroes and drawing. What I really remember, though, is that my days were always more exciting when he was in them. He was smarter than me. He was the one always coming up with new ideas, new ways to get in trouble. Sorry about those lamps, by the way, Miss Brooks. If I had jumped the way Michael said, I probably would have only broken one. Donald laughed, a gulping, desperate sound. Charlie shifted uncomfortably and pulled her hand from Marla's with an unapologetic half-smile. Their grief naked was too much to watch. It was raw, an open wound. She could not stand to look. Carlton came back down to sit with them. Michael's grandmother spoke, and then his father, who had recovered enough to share a memory of taking his son to his first art class. She told the crowd about the scholarships for the graduating senior who had demonstrated both excellence and passion in the arts and announced the winner of the first one. It was Anne Park, a slight Korean girl who came quickly up to the stage to accept her plaque and hugs from Michael's parents. Must have been strange for Anne, Charlie thought, her honor so overshadowed by its origins. But then she realized Anne must have known Michael too, however much in passing. After the ceremony, they went to say hello to Michael's parents, hugging them and making the sounds of condolence. I mean, what do you say to someone who's lost a child? Can it be any easier? Can ten years make a difference? Or do they wake up each morning as fresh with grief as the day he died? On a long cafeteria table by the stage, pictures and cards were collected slowly. People had brought flowers, notes to Michael's parents, or to him directly. Things they remembered, things they wished they had said. Michael went over and browsed through the notes. There were pictures of her, and the others as well as Michael. It shouldn't have surprised her, they were all together constantly, as a group or just rotating groups of two or three. She saw herself in the middle of a pose, Michael, John, and she all covered in mud, Jessica beside them still perfectly clean, refusing to go near them. Charlie smiled. Yeah, that looks about right. In another, a five-year-old Marla struggling to support the weight of her newborn little brother, with Lamar peering suspiciously at the tiny thing over her shoulder. Some of Michael's drawings were there, too. Crown scribbles professionally, incongruously framed. Charlie picked one up, a drawing of what she supposed was a T-Rex stomping through a city. It was actually, she realized now, almost amazing how talented he was. While she and the others were scribbling stick figures, Michael's drawings looked almost realistic. Well, sort of. That's really good, John said over her shoulder, and Charlie startled. Ah, you scared me. Eh, sorry. Charlie looked back at the drawing. Whatever it was, it was better than what she could draw now. Suddenly her chest tightened, gripped with loss and rage. It wasn't just that Michael had died young. It was that what it truly meant. He had been stopped in his tracks. Years, decades of life snatched and torn violently from him. She felt herself well up with youthful indignation as if she were a child again, wanting only to whine and scream out, It's not fair. Taking a deep breath, Charlie set the picture down on the table and turned away. 
The gathering was continuing, but she needed to leave. She caught Marla's eye, and Marla, as scarily intuitive as always, nodded and caught Lamar's sleeve. From their various vantage points, they all headed for the parking lot. No one seemed to notice their departure, which made sense. Except for Carlton, they were all strangers here. In the lot, they stopped by Marla's car. She had somehow called down a miracle and found a space right next to the school. Can I play my game now? Jason said immediately, and Marla found her keys in her purse and handed them over. Don't drive off, she warned. Suddenly, Marla grabbed her brother and pulled him close, hugging him for a long minute. Jeez, I'm only going to the car, he muttered when she let him go. Yeah, maybe I should let you drive away, she said, giving him a little push. She cleared her throat. All right, <clears throat> so are we going to Freddy's? She said, and they all looked at one another. Yeah, Charlie said, I think we should. Somehow following this, going back to Freddy's seemed like more than a game. It felt right. All right, so let's meet there at sunset, she said. Hey, Jessica, can you catch a ride with the guys or something? I'm going to go for a walk. You can come with us, Marla said. I promised Jason I'd take him to the movies anyway. Charlie headed down the road without waiting to hear the rest of the discussion. A dozen feet from the lot, she realized she was being followed. She turned around. John? Do you mind if I come? You're going to your old house, right? How did you know that? It's the only interesting thing out this way. Anyway, I went to go see my old place too. It was painted blue and there was a garden in the yard. It was so weird. I know it wasn't blue when I lived there, but I couldn't even remember what color it was supposed to be. Everything's different. Charlie didn't say anything. She wasn't even sure she wanted John to come with her. Her house, her father's house, it was a private thing. She thought the first time John had seen the toys, his fascination, an interest that was all his, that had nothing to do with pleasing her. But she relented. Okay, you can come. Is it? He hesitated. Is it different? It's really not, Charlie said. Though it wasn't quite true, but she wasn't sure how to explain the thing that had changed. They walked together for the better part of three miles, away from the town and down old roads, first paved, then gravel. As they neared the place, they left the roads, ascending the steep incline of a hill overrun with brush and trees that should have been trimmed or cut down ages ago. Three rooftops peeked over the leaves, scattered widely over the hill, but no one had lived in these houses for quite a long time. At last, they walked up the driveway, and John stopped short, staring up at the house. I thought it would be less intimidating, he said softly. But impatient, Charlie took his arm for a second and pulled him away, leading them around the side of the house. It was one thing for him to be here with her, but she was not quite ready to let someone else inside. She wasn't even sure she wanted to go inside again anyway. He followed her without protest, as if aware that they were in her territory and she would decide where they went. The property was large, more than a lawn. There were woods surrounding the wide space of the backyard, and as a child, Charlie had often felt like she was in her own little realm, ruler of all she surveyed. The grass had gone, wild, weeds growing feral and up to their knees. They walked the perimeter. John peered into the woods and Charlie was struck by her old childhood fear, like something out of a fairy tale. Don't go into the woods alone, Charlotte, her father warned. It was not sinister, just a parent's warning. Do not get lost. Like telling her not to cross the street without holding someone's hand, or not to touch the stove when it was hot. But Charlie took it more seriously. She knew from her storybooks, as all children did, that the woods contained wolves and more dangerous things. 
She caught John's sleeve. Don't, she said, and he pulled back away from the woods, not asking why. Instead, he went to a tree in the middle of the yard and put a hand on it. <laughs> Remember that tree? He asked, smiling, something a little wicked in his voice. Of course I do, Charlie said, walking over. It's been here longer than I ever was. But he was looking at her, waiting for more, and suddenly she remembered. It had been a sunny day, springtime, and they were six years old, maybe. Jan was visiting, and they were playing hide-and-seek, half-supervised by Charlie's father, who was in his garage workshop, absorbed in his machines. The door was open so that he would notice if someone screamed, but short of that, the outdoors was their own. John counted the ten, eyes covered facing the tree that was home base. The yard was wide and open, but there was not many places to hide, so Charlie buoyed up the excitement of the game and dared to hide beyond the forbidden edge of the woods, just barely beyond the tree line. John searched the other places first, though, behind her father's car, in the corner where one part of the garage jutted out, the space between the porch where a child could just barely crawl. And then he realized where she must be, and Charlie braced herself to run as he began to walk the edges of the yard, darting into the woods and out again, looking behind trees. When at last he found her, she took off, tearing across the lawn to the home base. He was just behind her, so close he could almost touch her, and she sped on, staying just out of reach. She hit the tree, almost slamming into it, and John was right behind her, bumping into her a second later, too fast to stop. They were both giggling hysterically, and then they stopped at the same moment, still gasping to catch their breath. Hey, is Charlotte? John said, stressing her name in the mocking tone that he always used. Don't call me that, Charlie said automatically. You ever seen grown-ups kiss? He picked up a stick and started digging at the tree bark like he was more interested in that than her answer. Yeah, I guess so. You want to try it? He still wasn't looking at her. His face was streaked with dirt like it often was, and his hair was sticking out in all directions. A twig caught in above his forehead. <laughs> Gross, Charlie said, wrinkling her nose. Then after a moment, yeah, okay. John dropped the stick and leaned towards her, his hands behind his back. Charlie closed her eyes, waiting, still not entirely sure what she was supposed to be doing. Charlotte! It was her father. Charlie jumped back. John's face was so close to hers that she banged into him with her forehead. He yelled in pain, clapping a hand to his nose. Charlie's father came around the side of the tree. What are you up to? John? He pried John's fingers away from his nose. You're not bleeding. You'll be fine, he said. Charlotte, closer to the house, please. He then pointed his finger directing them forward. John, it looks like your mother is here anyway. He walked ahead of them towards the driveway where her car had just pulled in. Yeah, okay. John trotted off towards the driveway, turning once to wave at Charlie. He was grinning like something wonderful had happened, although Charlie was not quite sure what it was. Oh my, Charlie said now, covering her face. Sure, it was bright red. When she looked up again, John was grinning, that same satisfied six-year-old grin. You know, my nose still actually hurts when it rains, he said, touching a finger to it. It does not, Charlie said. She leaned back against the tree. I can't believe you tried to kiss me. We were six. Charlie stared at him accusingly. Even the littlest heart wants what it wants, John said in a mock romantic voice. But there was an edge of something real in it, something not well hidden enough. Charlie realized suddenly that he was standing very close to her. Let's go see your dad's workshop. John said abruptly, too loud, and Charlie nodded. Okay. She regretted it as soon as she said it. She did not want to open that workshop door. She closed her eyes, still leaning against the tree. 
She could still see it. It was all she could see when she thought of the place. The twitching, malformed metal skeleton in the corner. With its wrenching shutters and its blistering silver eyes. The image welled up in her head until it was all there. The memory radiating a curating, cutting languish. She did not know who it belonged to. To the thing, to her father, or to herself. Charlie felt a hand on her shoulder and opened her eyes. It was John frowning at her like he was worried. Charlie, are you okay? No, she thought. But yes, she said. Come on, let's go see what's in the workshop. It was not locked, and there was no real reason it should be, Charlie thought. Her eyes went first to the dark corner, and the figure was not there. There was a weathered apron hanging in its place, the one her father had worn for soldering, and his goggles next to it. But there was no sign of that uncanny presence. Charlie should have felt relief, but she didn't. Only a vague unease. She looked around. There seemed to be almost nothing left of the workshop. The benches were there where her father had assembled and tweaked his inventions, but the materials, the blueprints, and half-finished robots that were once crammed into every surface had disappeared. Where are they? Had her aunt carted them away to a junkyard to rust and crumble among other discarded useless things? Or had her father done it himself so no one else would have to? The concrete floor was littered here and there with scraps. Whoever had done the cleanup had not been very thorough. Charlie knelt and picked up oddly shaped scraps of wood and a small circuit board, and she turned it over. <laughs> Whose brain were you going to be? she wondered. But it did not matter, not really. It was battered and worn, the etched copper too badly scratched to repair, even if someone wanted to. Charlie, John said from across the workshop. He was in the dark corner. If the skeleton had been there, it could have reached out to touch him. But it was not there. Yeah, what? Come see what I found. Charlie went. John was standing beside her father's toolbox, and he stepped away as she came over, giving her space. Charlie knelt down before it. It looked as if it had been polished. It was made of dark, stained wood, glossy with some kind of lacquer. She opened it gently. Charlie picked up an owl from the top tray and held it for a moment, the rounded wooden handle fitting into the palm of her hands as if it had been made for her to use, not that she knew how. The last time she picked it up, she could barely fit her fingers around the base. She picked up the tools, one after another, lifting them from their places. The toolbox had wooden spaces carved out and to fit the precise shape of each item. All the tools were polished and cleaned, their wooden handles smooth and their metal unrusted. They looked as though they had been used just that morning, and wiped down and put away meticulously, like someone still cared for them. She looked at them with a fierce, unexpected joy, as if something she had fought for was returned to her, but her joy felt wrong, misplaced. Looking at her father's things set her off balance. Something in the world was not as it should be. Seized suddenly with an unfounded fear, she was thrusting the awl back into its place, back in the box, dropping it like it was something that was burning. She closed the lid, but she did not stand. Memory overtook her. She closed her eyes, not fighting against it. Her feet wedged in the dirt, and two large and callous hands covered her eyes. Suddenly there was a bright light, and Charlie squinted, squirming impatiently to see what was before her. Three complete and gleaming figures towered over her, motionless, the sun reflecting off every edge and contour. They were blinding to behold. What do you think? She heard the question, but could not answer it. Her eyes hadn't adjusted. The three masses of standing metal all looked similar in structure. 
but Charlie had grown accustomed to seeing more than what was there, imagining the final result. For a long time now, there had been three empty suits, hanging like carcasses from a rafter in the attic. Charlie knew that they had a special purpose, and now she understood what that was. Two long beams protruded from the top of the head of the one with the honking masses. The head itself was solid and skull-like. The beams looked as if they'd been violently thrust there. That's the rabbit, Charlie squealed, proud of herself. You aren't scared of him, the voice asked. Of course not, he looks like Theodore. Theodore, that's right. The figure in the middle was more clearly rendered. His face chiseled, its features distinct. It was clearly a bear, and a single metal beam stuck out from the top of its head as well. Charlie was puzzled for a moment, then smiled. Oh, that's for the top hat, she said with confidence. The last form, however, was perhaps the most frightening. A long metal clamp protruded from its empty face, in the place where a mouth might go. It was holding something on a platter, a metal structure that looked like a jaw, wires running like strewn spaghetti, up and down the frame and in and out of the sockets. That one's scary, she admitted hesitantly. Oh well, this part's going to look like a cupcake. Her father pressed down on the top and the jaw snapped shut, making Charlie jump and then giggle. But suddenly her laughter stopped. She had been so distracted she'd forgotten. I'm not supposed to stand here. I don't stand here. Her hands were trembling. How could she have forgotten? The corner. She looked at the ground, unable to lift her eyes, unable to move. One of her shoes was untied. There was a screw next to her foot and an old piece of tape, opaque with dirt. There was something behind her. Charlie? It was John. Charlie? She looked up at him. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I just lost this place. She stood and took a step forward, positioning herself in the place she remembered. She glanced behind her as if the memory might manifest itself. The corner was empty and there was nothing. She knelt again and put her hand on the ground, fishing around until she found a small screw in the bare dirt. She palmed it, then looked closer. There were small holes in the ground, exposed when she moved the loose dirt. Charlie ran her fingers over them, thoughtful. Charlie, I have to tell you something. There was something urgent in John's voice. Charlie looked around the workshop and stood up. Okay, but can we go outside? I can't breathe in here. Yeah, of course, he said. He followed her out into the yard and back to the hide-and-seek tree. She was tired, a wrung-out exhaustion deep inside. She'd be fine in a minute, but she wanted a place that held only a silly childhood memory. She sat down in the grass and leaned against the trunk, waiting for John to talk. He settled himself cross-legged in front of her, a little stiffly, smoothing his pants, and she laughed. Are you worried about getting dirty? Times change, he said with a wry smile. Well, what is it? What do you have to tell me? She asked, and his face grew serious. I should have said something a long time ago, he said. I just... When something happens like that, you don't trust your memory. You don't trust your own mind. What are you talking about? Sorry. He took a deep breath. I saw someone that night. The night Michael disappeared. What do you mean? Remember when we were sitting at the table by the stage and the animals started going crazy? I remember, Charlie said. It had been bizarre. Their movements upsetting. They were moving too fast, bending and spinning and cycling through their limited programming moves over and over. They seemed frantic, panicked. Charlie was mesmerized. 
she should have been afraid of them, but she was not. She saw in their juddering motion a kind of desperation. She was reminded for a moment of dreams, of running, dreams when the world depended on her going just ten steps forward, but yet her body could only move in slow motion, and something was wrong, terribly wrong, chaotically, violently. The animatronic animals on stage thrashed robotic limbs in all directions, their eyes rolling in their sockets. What did you see? Charlie said to John now, shaking her head as though she could rid it of the image. There was another mascot, he said. A, a bear. Yeah, Freddy, Charlie interrupted without thinking. No, not Freddy. John took her hands as if trying to calm them both, but he let go before he spoke again. It was standing right next to us, next to our table, but it wasn't looking at the stage like everyone else. That technician came over, remember? And even he was just watching the animatronics. I guess he was trying to figure out what was happening. I looked over at the mascot, and it looked back at me. John, what? Charlie said impatiently. Then the animatronics on stage stopped moving, and I looked over at them. And when we all turned back around, Michael was gone, and so was that mascot. Charlie stared at him in disbelief. You saw the kidnapper. I don't know what I saw, John said. It was all chaos. I didn't even think about it. I didn't make the connection. It was just another animal at Freddy's. I didn't think about who might have been inside. I was... I was just a kid, you know? You figure that the grown-ups already know everything, you know? Yeah, Charlie said, I know. Do you remember anything else, though? Like, maybe what that person looked like? Charlie was staring up at the sky as if he were seeing something. Charlie could not. Yes, he said. His voice was deliberate, steady. The eyes, they were all I could see. But I still see them sometimes, like they're right in front of me. They were dead. What? They were dead. Just dull. Flat. Like they still moved and blinked and saw, but whatever was behind them had died a long time ago. He fell silent. It was growing dark. There was a bright, almost unnatural streak of pink across the western sky, and Charlie shivered. Look, we should go to the car. It's almost time to meet everybody. Yeah. John said, but he didn't move right away, still staring in the distance. John, we we should probably go, Charlie said, and he seemed to come back to his body slowly. Yeah, he said, we we should go. He got up and brushed off his pants, then grinned at Charlie. <laughs> Race you, he said, and took off running. Charlie chased after him, her feet pounding the asphalt, and her arms swinging free. That is the end of chapter three of Five Nights at Freddy's The Silver Eyes.